Today's podcast is brought to you by Citizen Path. It's a new way to prepare U.S. immigration forms. It's an online service that makes it easy to prepare and file USCIS applications and petitions. Believe me, as a nationalized citizen, I know the hassle. Citizen Path gives you instant alerts if there's a problem. The service even provides a guarantee, yes, a guarantee that USCIS will approve the form. Citizen Path was designed by immigration attorneys, but it's significantly less expensive than an attorney. And here's the fun part. Immigrantly listeners can use coupon code immigrantly to save 15%. You can visit their website at citizenpath.com. Welcome back listeners. This is the first episode of season 10 and I'm really excited about the guest we have on today. My hunch is that a lot of you will be cooking up a storm this evening inspired to have some fun in the kitchen and with your spice cabinet. I always say to my friends, actually I complain that I don't like cooking because it's too much work to clean up. But in reality, growing up in Pakistan, I never had a chance to cook, nor did my mother. For those of you who are familiar with Pakistani culture, if you belong to a certain socioeconomic class, you have help at home and you don't have to be super rich to afford a cook. So we had a cook and I never felt the need to try different recipes or experiment in the kitchen. Plus, I don't have stories about my mother's recipes or her cooking endeavors. I learned how to cook when I moved to the US and to be honest, it always felt like a chore. Hence, I have a love-hate relationship with cooking. Sure, it's fun to try new recipes, but when you're a busy parent with kids who have picky palates, cooking can be challenging to say the least. But I am trying to approach food and cooking through a different lens. I am actually trying to enjoy cooking by experimenting with flavors and textures. So you must be wondering, why am I talking about food? Besides the obvious answer, which is that we all need food to sustain ourselves, I feel like so much of our identity and culture come from sharing flavors embedded in custom dishes. How those dishes evolve over the years also shed light on how different communities do too. So I thought why not explore the connections that exist between food and identity. And our today's guest will definitely add something special to our idea around food and culture. He is every bit inspiring, provocative and revolutionary for finding the commonalities between molecular biology and the cilantro you just garnished your rice with. I was blown away by how much I learned from speaking with Nick. Nick Sharma is a renowned food writer, recipe developer and photographer with Bombay Roots who currently resides in LA. His entry into food scene was his hit blog, A Brown Table. Since then, he has published two best-selling cookbooks, including The Flavor Equation just this past October. And he writes for San Francisco Chronicle, Serious Eats, 
and Food and Wine magazine as their food columnist. Here you can hear the crackling sounds of Indo Sichuan chili sauce that Nick is making. I couldn't resist sharing this with you. So let's get started. You know, you'll see a lot of um, vintage cookware and all, and it's beautiful, don't get me wrong, but that also can set people off. You know, if you think about it, they'll say, oh gosh, that looks like I don't think I can do it. And people forget the power of imagery also sometimes. And, you know, we always talk about words and ingredient lists that can turn people off. Imagery can also turn people off. At Immigrantly, we have seen a fair share of authors, political activists, artists. But looking at you, Nick, I feel like despite being first and foremost a food writer, you also fall into these different categories, maybe less so directly. Uh, but what I've seen and the type of flavors and cuisines you experiment with and your social media presence, I feel like you've expanded beyond the boundaries of what I would typically see as a food or recipe blogging. A brown table itself screams what social cultural undertones. How would you define yourself right now and the work you do? And what led you to pivot from cells and microbes to cookies and masala? <laughs> okay. Uh, gosh, that's a tough one. So I definitely see myself as someone dynamic. That's how I to define myself. I actually struggle with that question because hmm. I'm constantly evolving as a person. My thoughts on food are constantly evolving. My thoughts on culture uh, you know, just like how we behave in, as, in society, that also constantly evolves as I meet more people, I learn more things. And so I struggle with the definition also of who I am or what my work really represents. Um, at the end of the day, I would say this, I am interested in representing the food I, the way I want to do it, uh, hmm. because it's my point of view. And it's influenced by my experiences living in India, coming to America and then living here. Um, and, you know, in America, I've lived in the Midwest, in the on the East Coast, in the South, and now I'm on the West Coast. So it's definitely influenced by all of that. And also my experiences, uh, you know, growing up in India, I come from a mixed cultural faith family. My mother's Catholic, my dad's Hindu. I'm openly gay uh, and I'm also married now. Uh, so. All of this influences the way I work, the way I think about my work. Uh, maybe it's not so direct and maybe sometimes it comes across as direct, but all of these things, and I think this is true for any individual who is working, especially in creative fields, because we then get the opportunity to express ourselves through oh. different mediums or media. And um, I think that's where this plays out. So I definitely don't see myself as someone who is defined by any kind of norms or traditions. I'm constantly evolving and changing. Um, and so is my food. And food is the way I represent myself. It's very interesting you say that I have seen your recipes, I have seen your videos, I have tried to experiment with a couple, but I am not a good cook. So um, they turned out fine. But I'm amazed with the evolution that has taken place. For instance, I was um, 
I think I even mentioned it in my email. I was experimenting with your carrot raita and I never thought we could put like tarka on raita, which was such an interesting spin on a simple raita that I used to eat growing up. So I have noticed that. And in terms of your advocacy um, and you being part of LGBTQ plus community, your Instagram boldly waves the pride flag, which is so great. So how do you see food as a medium of advocacy? That's a really good question and also a really difficult one to answer <laughs> because I don't think, at least I haven't, I feel like I haven't done anything, you know? It's really diff- difficult for me to say that I'm advocating anything. I don't know if I am, uh, to be honest, and I don't think I have. Like, I wish I could do more. And, yeah. and and that's my goal. I feel like I haven't done enough. And I so I do need to do more throughout my career because I think mm. one of the most important things to me is that, you know, having success, and I've been so fortunate to have a fair degree of success in my career. You know, like you mentioned, moving from one field to another, um, started out in science and then came to food writing. And I think one of the most important things with any kind of success is to give back somehow to the community in whatever way you can. It Mm. doesn't have to be defined by anyone else, but by you. Um, Mm. And for me, that is to tell the stories of the people that I know are not being represented. And so for me, that is through food. And often Mm. I'll see, uh, you know, just coming from India, um, and I see this with a lot in food media, is that even the deaf, one of the reasons why I wanted to write about Indian food. And I don't write about Indian food in the context of what's already known. I come in with the context of, okay, this is a recipe that I feel as a reader or as a cook, you will really enjoy the flavors, Mm. the way to make it. But at the same time, I also want you to learn and know that there is an India or, you know, for that matter, even Southeast Asia, because all those influences are so... um, Interconnected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the same recipes are just done so differently. But and I think that's what's beautiful about the whole thing. Uh, And so coming from that part of the world, I want people to know that that, you know, we're not all eating the same things all the time. And, you know, I I kind of need to work on that notion of, um, you know, like Indian food really isn't that vegetarian, for example, Mm. you know. Mm. And so I think that's like a myth that's been perpetuated quite a bit in the West. And as someone who's grown up in a, you know, in a multi-faith background where um, my father's Hindu came from a family that only ate vegetables. And then my mom's family, which predominantly is, is, they're quite big, heavy meat eaters. So for me, that kind of balance needs to be brought because it's quite misleading in the West, because then those kind of notions you know, will bring up comments. And I'll give you an example. When I first came to America and someone saw me eating beef, they were quite shocked. And they Hmm. said, don't your people like worship the cow and don't eat the cow? And I said, well, it depends on who you define as who are my people. Because (laughs) it's such, I, I think, and this is where like this, you know, these kind of recipes are important because it's important to talk about the fact that we eat everything in India. It just depends on which community, what kind of, you know, interactions you've had with people socially. And that's the conversation that needs to be framed about because it leads to a lot of unnecessary bias and misconceptions. Nick, do you feel the pressure to represent your Indian heritage 
and the spices and styles of cooking that are pretty much backbone of regional cuisine. Because what I noticed with a lot of chefs and food bloggers in the U.S. who come from India or even Pakistan, they are straddling two cultures and their recipes evolve as well. But then there are people who are not comfortable with the evolution that food takes place or any departure from their I don't want to call it authentic, but original recipes. Um, I was one of those people. I am trying to learn to broaden my idea of what Pakistani food actually is and what sure. it means. Did you feel that pressure? Do you feel that pressure now? And how do you reconcile with this nuanced burden? I feel the pressure more now than I ever did before. Oh, wow. Seriously? <laughs> yes. And it's a very strange thing because, see, in my case, like I've mentioned, I, I come from a multi-faith background. So my parents did their best to kind of cook dishes that were from both of their cultures that they were familiar with. And my mother cooked a lot of Western food. Just, um, you know, she she's from Bombay, grew up in Bombay, still lives there. And her food is the type of food that she cooks like she'll make cakes, she'll make flans. But then if you think about it, that's how food evolves, right? Like even yeah. in India and Southeast Asia, when we make something that we're unfamiliar with, we also try to bring in things that are familiar to us into that recipe. And if you look at a lot of Indian desserts, for example, and this is even true of Pakistani food, you know, saffron mm. and cardamom come in quite a bit. Yes. Right? Because yeah. of the influences from the Middle East. So you see these two flavors. And then when you see, you know, people in India baking or they're making a flan, and I'll give you an example. So my mother's family, they're originally from Goa. And so they make flan, which is mm. quite a popular Portuguese dish. Now that's come through colonialism to them, right? And right. what they've done is that they put cardamom in it. They put vanilla sometimes, but most often they'll put cardamom into it. So now cardamom isn't exactly a flavor that's native to Portugal. That's right? Indian twist, right? <laughs> right. And they're putting that in there. So from there and they're doing what is comfortable to them and it makes them happy. Mm. Now, what's happening when you come, when you leave your country of birth or where your parents are from and you're living now in a new country, you're trying to hold on to nostalgia, which is one thing. The second thing that's happening is that you're trying to make these dots connecting. And then there's this also this visceral notion of what really is the food of your culture. Right. And I haven't grown up with that kind of, I call it a burden. And I haven't grown up with that kind of burden. In fact, I loathe traditions because my parents had a love marriage. And for the longest time, both sides of the families didn't talk to each other. And mm. so for me, that the tradition has always been kind of like a negative thing. It causes this situation where... People are so adhered to what they've been handed down again and again and again and again that they're unwilling to break away from it. And in reality, all the foods in any part of the world have evolved, right, over time. So it's through what's available and what makes you, what you find tastes good and what works for you in the kitchen. And that's going to happen whether people like it or not. That's going to happen even after I'm long gone and dead. That's natural. It's a natural process of evolution. That's such an interesting perspective, Nick. And I think you have broadened the taste spectrum as well, right? I was mm -hmm. listening to one of your interviews 
where um, you talk about how you've added different tastes. Because when I think about taste, and again, being a very basic chef, I wouldn't even call myself chef. I'm just, you know, home cook. I don't call myself chef. (laughs) (laughs) I think about, you know, sweet, sour, bitter, Mm -hmm. salty. And you've added taste like uh, fat, brightness, um, fiery, which is remarkable. How did you add those different tastes and what does it mean to you in terms of how you approach cooking? Yeah, so most of the way I've learned to cook is through intuition um, Mm. and then also through, you know, cooking with my family and friends and then through cookbooks and also watching TV shows. (laughs) But one of the things is that you do as you start to practice and you start to cook is that you start to pay attention to your senses and you start to pay attention to how different things taste when they're raw and when they're cooked. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's taught in Asia. In a lot of Asian cooking in general in the continent, you're taught to rely on your senses. You know, you taste something, okay, it's a bit too sour. How do I reduce the sourness? You know, yeah, that's or true. You, and then like if something is kind of too spicy or too bitter, sometimes people will add, you know, lime juice or they'll add a bit of sugar in there to sweeten it. So we do all this constantly. And so what I really wanted to do in this book was talk about the basic tastes because this book has a science component to it. And I wanted to talk about the five basic tastes, which are uh, sour, salty, sweet, bitter, and uh, savory. Hmm. And then I wanted to talk about the taste of fat because so often as a cook, we use um, fats that are very flavorful, like ghee, chicken fat, pork fat, all these other different um ingredients in cooking. And I wanted to bring that in because they do have their own taste, which is what makes a dish so different. You know, you you fry an egg in ghee or you cook it in coconut oil. The taste mm. is just so different. And I wanted to give that perspective to fats. And there is a growing body of scientific research now, which is looking into the role of fat as a separate taste. So I felt it was necessary to bring that uh, in the book because I feel that's something that just deserve so much attention. I feel it's left out quite a bit from books on taste. Do you have your favorite fat flavor? Definitely ghee. And I, Hmm. because it's just such a beautiful fat, you know, you just take butter, you dry the water out, you caramelize the milk, solids and sugars, and then it gives this nutty aroma. And it works in everything from savory foods to sweets. Today's episode is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care, hair care, and beauty products with over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands. The Skin Store has covered you all for your hair, cosmetics, supplements, and of course, skincare needs. Find your favorite brands like Alta MD, New Face, my favorite, Olaplex, and more all in one place with gifts with every purchase. And right now, this is the fun part. The Skin Store is offering our listeners, immigrantly listeners, 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD, that's code P-O-D, for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod dot list. But going back to what I said in the beginning, Nick, how did you move from molecular biology to cooking? Like, what was that transition like? 
scary. <laughs> <laughs> I was in academia and I was in grad school in the I was going to evening grad school. So I was in grad school in the evenings and during the day I worked as a researcher. And when you're in academia all day long, you're just doing research and studying, you need a break. You need to do something else. And at least in my case. And at the time, you know, food blogs were becoming popular. And I'd learned about, you know, I started looking at these blogs, looking at the photos, and I would spend hours just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through recipes and pretty photos. And I said, oh my gosh, this is just so fantastic. And people are sharing on a medium that no one else is controlling but them, the food that they want to talk about. Mm. And at that time, I decided that I would um, give it a shot on the basis of encouragement of friends and family. I said, you know what? I'll see how this goes. And so, you know, I started out with food blogging. Um, you keep feeding the beast, it leads to more and more. And then over time, um, you know, I made the switch. I decided first to see if I could work as a cook huh. and worked as a pastry cook in California for about a year and a half. You know, opportunities started coming in. And then I eventually just went into food writing and cooking full time. How does your background in molecular biology come in handy um, when you're cooking or when you're experimenting with recipes, do you approach cooking in a more scientific manner because of that? Or does it still seem as an art to you? Or should we not label cooking either way? It's something that's always evolving, malleable, and we should just leave it at that. I approach cooking and any recipe I develop by what excites me at the end of the day. That's like the mm. bottom line is if it doesn't excite me, I'll not cook it, no matter what anyone says. It really has to drive me and make me enthusiastic. So if I'm thinking about something, I'm craving something, you know, the enthusiasm flows. I can, you know, I'm much more excited to be creative with the flavors mm. or the technique. And of course, when it comes to the science of it, that does inform the way I then approach the recipe, you know, making the technique better or faster um, and also getting the most you know, the best texture, the best flavor. So that definitely informs me. Um, and then I think it's just such a privilege to be able to do the whole thing, you know, and combine all these things. Do you measure ingredients? Because as a home cook, uh, I don't. I put spices randomly or I will not measure stuff. And sometimes I think I'm doing a disservice by not doing that. What are your thoughts on that? Is measurement important component of how the recipe or the, you know, flavor comes out? Yes and no. So I think there's We've all grown up in different places. So I grew mm -hmm. up in India where, you know, sometimes my mother would not follow a recipe. And then sometimes she actually did. And after my maternal grandmother passed away, I inherited her cooking notebook. And she kept ah. detailed notes uh, typed out or handwritten with quantities. So that's made my life easy. So in the <laughs> sense that, you know, I don't have to, I mean, I still have to figure out things if the ingredients aren't available in her notes. But it is definitely important to consider the fact that not everyone cooks the way I cook. And that's what I do with my recipes. Not everyone has the same skill set. And I think you have to understand that as a recipe writer. That's one of the most important things is that try to understand who your audience is. Do they all have the same skill sets? A lot of them will not. A lot of them are just learning to cook or are excited to try something new. And you do not want to intimidate anyone. 
So here's my question. I've seen your Instagram feed and it looks beautiful. It's so visually appealing. But when I look at the recipes, like I was looking at, I think it's samosa pie. Mm -hmm. I, I It just hit me. I was like, oh my God. For someone who is intimidated by lengthy recipes or even like litany of these curious ingredients, where would you tell them to start, especially from your cookbook or going on mm -hmm. your blog? Where do they start? So I'll give you the example of the samosa pie since you bring that up. One huh. of the reasons why I did the samosa pie is because no one wants to go through the whole process of making the pastry from scratch. Huh. And so eliminating that thing, even for me, like sometimes I want a samosa, so I'll go and order it, but I really don't want to sit down and, you know, fry and make the pastry. It's too much work, even for me, as someone who loves to cook and does it for a living. And so what do people want? People want quick things that they can put together. So in the recipe, basically you're cooking the potatoes and you're putting a can of chickpeas in it, folding all that together, seasoning it, and then just using store-bought phyllo sheets to yeah. get it. So you don't have to go, I mean, you're eliminating two things right there, which are quite, ar not arduous, I mean, it'll be arduous for some, but it's time consuming. And that is making the pastry and then, you know, chilling it, rolling it out. Here it's all done. You're buying it from the store, putting it in. So that was at surprisingly, I wasn't sure how people would receive it, but it was one of the most popular recipes from the book because it was, you make it, you can eat it as a meal or you can eat it as a snack. Um, and I think that's where understanding your audience is really important because like I said, not everyone has the same skill sets and even those who do may not want to go through a whole process at the end right. of the day. Okay, so I will try it after our interview. I'm going to get all the ingredients and I am going to try it. But Nick, sometimes even the simplest dishes are hardest to master, like mm -hmm. the perfect scrambled egg or homemade yeah. yogurt. My husband tries to make homemade yogurt and he succeeded a few times, but there have been some, um, I guess, debacles. What is it for you? Is there one simple recipe that is difficult to master and you've been trying or you've already mastered but it was initially very difficult i think you're gonna laugh say this <laughs> but making boiled eggs <laughs> boiled eggs can be it's, it's it sounds like the most simplest thing to do ah. but it is one of the most painful things to do because the first thing is it depends on what kind you want do you want soft boiled do you want runny yeah. do you want hard boiled once you decide on that, then you have to think about peeling the eggs if they need to be peeled. And then once you get the peeling sorted out, then you have to worry about the greenish yellow ring and all these things. So it is theory wise, it should be the most simplest thing. In reality, it's actually one of the most complicated things to do. And, you know, I've tried instant pot. I'm honestly not a big fan of the instant pot. I use yeah. it very rarely and I've made hard boiled eggs with it. Sometimes you get good results. Sometimes you don't. And the best method is sous vide for eggs. And that's been like for me now, I just sous vide hard boiled eggs or soft boiled eggs because you get the right degree of creaminess also sometimes, you know, when you want it yeah. just semi-soft or semi-hard rather, it does the best job. And Instant Pot just never does it for me. So <laughs> that's been for me like one of those things where you have to try out a hundred different methods to come to the right way to do it. That works for me. So I want to go back to your Instagram and also in your writing, you employ these vivid and up-close photographs. Do you take these pictures yourself? I do, yes. In terms of how you capture the image, what about that process is important to describing the dish? 
So it definitely needs to, as from a marketing perspective, I'll be honest, it needs to draw in the reader to cook. Hmm. And the second part of it is I want everybody to feel and imagine themselves cooking that dish. So that's a second very important part to me. Hmm. And I think one of the things that happens sometimes with a lot, this is another like bias that I've noticed in photography is when hmm. a food is from a certain culture, then there is this desire, this tendency to overprop it with um, dishes and, you know, give this nostalgic look. Hmm. You know, you'll see a lot of um, vintage cookware and all, and it's beautiful, don't get me wrong, but that also can set people off. You know, if you think about it, they'll say, oh, gosh, that looks like I don't think I can do it. And mm. people mm -hmm. forget the power of imagery also sometimes. And, you know, we always talk about words and ingredient lists that can turn people off. Imagery can also turn people off. They might love the image, how it looks, but it might not induce them, induce them to actually cook a recipe. And then I, what I wanted to do was also just, you know, I don't live in India anymore, but when I go back and I also try to remember how my you know, grandparents would serve food. They mm. never served meals on such elaborate, beautiful, ornate dishes. Everything was just right. served <laughs> on a, you know, on very simple, like plain bowls, like we would get here. So that's something that I've kind of brought into my work uh, as I've grown as a photographer is to pay attention to these cultural cues also where people feel welcome. That's the most important thing. I want people to feel welcome when they come to cook. And you want to make it look simple. Right. I wouldn't say simple because mm -hmm. I simple makes me very uncomfortable as a word in uh -huh. cooking. It you know the opposite of simple is difficult, and so then oh. that implies that other people's food is difficult. So culture, in from a cultural yeah. standpoint, I hate actually loathe using certain words. Oh, <laughs> simple is one of them. Nick, going back to what we talked about earlier, receiving pushback from people. Um, or part of communities who hold space in on the type of work that you do. What kind of criticism have you received for reinventing dishes or has anybody blamed you or accused you for taking the ingredients out of context and how did you deal mm -hmm. with it? I usually just speak my mind. I really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> because I think one of the things people forget is that I'm not writing a thesis every time I write a recipe. I feel I really work hard at informing my audience about not only the science, but also about, you know, the cultural points that I feel will be of value to them. And I'm also not a scholar in Indian food. I think that's something that I've been very vocal about is that don't come to me if you're looking for traditional Indian food. I can cook probably a couple of things really well. I can't pretend and tell you that, and I'm not going to pretend and lie and say that I'm the expert on something when I'm not. I'm just going to tell you, you should probably go to someone else because that's not the way I cook at home and that's not the kind of food that I serve people. And I should have asked you this question in the beginning, but what is the process of writing a recipe for you? What does it look like? Uh, so definitely it has to make me excited to cook and also... Um, develop the recipe, there has to be some love degree of enthusiasm. Hmm. It, it, it's a rigorous process for me because I'll start out testing recipes that sometimes, like for the cookbook, there is a recipe, the coconut cake. I ended hmm. up testing that 20 times. And I think the coconut cookies, I tested 26 before I was comfortable with it and happy wow. because it has to work in every aspect, not only in the taste, but also in the texture. The method needs to be as accessible as possible. And that's 
takes a lot of time to develop because not only do you test it out yourself and you send it out to testers to test and they come back with feedback. So it is a very rigorous process and takes a lot of time. Do you ask your spouse to test it too? He doesn't cook, but he will taste test and give me opinions. Is he like brutally honest with you or he's like, no, everything's just tastes he's perfect. Honest. Ah. Yeah, he's honest. Yeah. And but I, I I always don't rely on family or friends for opinions because they can be biased in some hmm. ways. And I prefer getting opinions from people who are testing my recipes that I really don't know, because then there's that they'll, they'll be a little more direct. And I need that. <laughs> I would have thought that, you know, sometimes families are more brutal in their feedback. They can be, but it also has to come from a place of constructive criticism. Sometimes also just being critical for the sake of being critical doesn't yeah. really help me. And, you know, like I once did a dosa with an egg on it and my mother freaked out. And I said, why are you freaking <laughs> out? Like I haven't taken your child and killed it. What, why are you getting so emotional? And I said, you don't even make dosa. So I said, I, I don't get the issue here. And so she said, no, it's it's. Like, I've not seen that. And I said, well, appams are also made with eggs so often. Anyway, I said, I, that's why I don't want your opinion. I told her, yeah. I never, I don't ask you for my or your opinions and I don't share my food with you because it's not going to help me. Yeah, I think for us, again, immigrants who've come from different parts of the world, we hold food very close to our hearts. I feel like we... Well, my mother hasn't left India, so I don't know what she's holding. Yeah, that's true. But I think even then, maybe she... I think all of us in our own twisted ways become gatekeepers of food true. and identity and how we want to preserve it, right? So I think that is a disadvantage now that I've, you know, spoken to so many people and especially is, yeah. within the creative realm, I think it is so important to experiment and to create stuff that is more palatable, not just to us, but to others. Absolutely. I mean, this is where I think, you know, with as a child, I didn't think it was a fortunate experience to be of a mixed faith background. Oh. But as an adult, now that I'm in food, it has definitely been one of the biggest blessings in my food because I don't think about a lot of these barriers. I didn't grow up, you know, doing a lot of things. And so oh. a, a lot of things that people would consider the norm, I don't. And oh. it doesn't bother me. I It does like a lot, like I've had conversations with other authors who are from India uh, and they'll say, oh, like you did this. And I said, yeah, why is this a problem? <laughs> and they said, it's not a problem, but we would have never thought of doing it. And I think that comes because I didn't grow up with these mental barriers. And traditions are great in a way, but they're also kind like a shackle. Yeah, sometimes they are limiting in Absolutely. how we approach things. Let's talk about the food industry. Now, there are imperfections like in any industry. Sure. But if you could change something about how things are run in the food world or how writers get published or known or how even like funding is distributed, what would it be? So I've never worked in media full time ever. So I can't speak to that side of the experience. Hmm. I've always worked as a freelancer or been on contracts. In that sense, what I would really love to see more of is more diversity in food media. And when I mean diversity, I don't mean that it has to be at the face. You don't right. have to be face yeah. front. It could yeah. be something behind the scenes. Hmm. And I think that's quite powerful because that's where the actual exchange of power is happening. 
these are the people that are controlling who gets to come on TV. These are the people who are controlling who gets to write a recipe. And I think once you start bringing in that diversity, you see more of these articles and stories and, and you know, uh, TV shows being commissioned. And that's more powerful because just putting people a name on paper is great. But when you actually see power being exchanged, that has much more long-term effects. Yeah, I see a lot of performative work within the diversity realm. I don't see actual diversity, as you said. And sometimes I'm baffled by how do people not distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. And as you said, diversity has to mean diversity, and especially in the background as well. Do you think there is a so-called American cuisine? I mean, it depends what you're looking for. I think Southern food, for example, when I think of American food, to me, Southern food is the first thing that comes to mind because my husband's from the South. And that's my strongest connection to this country is my husband and his family. And they're from the South. Southern food is what they cook a lot at home. And to me, that is part of the culture. But again, it's just like India, right? India is also a melting pot of so many different cultures. Mm. If you look at America, you've got people who have come from different parts of the world. You've got Native Americans who have been here. You've got, um, you know, the Italians, the French, the German, you know, all of these different European uh, cultures have come in. You've got uh, people from different parts of Asia. So all of this is American food at the end of the day. Right. So to say that, you know, I think it's um, I think it's just defined by many things. And in the end, if you were to describe America in the context of food, how would you describe it? In the context of food, I would say as someone who didn't have the money to travel as a child and then coming to a country where all these different foods were cuisines were made accessible through restaurants, it became my passport to the world. And for that, I'm truly grateful because I would have never had been able to eat Greek food without otherwise traveling to Greece to eat it. I was lucky to be able to eat it uh, in America when I had no money. That's beautiful, Nick. So where can people find your book? What is your IG handle? Because I really want them to go try your recipes, see the feed. It looks so nice. Can you give all that information? Yeah. So you can find me on my blog, which is www.com abrowntable.com or you can find me on Instagram and my account is abrowntable and that's where I spend most of my time. Thank you, Nick. This was so good and I will definitely try some other recipes of yours that I was freaking out about. I was like, I can't do this, but I will definitely give them a try. Don't forget to check Nick's blog and try out some of his recipes. Until next time, when we have another guest, take care.